Well, if you didn't get uh, an outline sheet on your way in, we've got some gentlemen who are going to come up the aisles and uh, hand those out to you. So if you didn't uh, get one of those, I would encourage you to raise your hand and get them to hand you one so you can follow along this morning with our message and also have some application questions to take home with you to uh, maybe use in your quiet time this week or talk over uh, with your family over lunch today. Um, but uh, as most of you know, uh, I recently completed a series on the Minor Prophets on Wednesday night, and we called it Major Points from the Minor Prophets, and uh, went through all 12 of the Minor Prophets, Hosea to Malachi, and we found out that uh, they're anything but minor. Uh, lots of major truths, major principles uh, in those Minor Prophets, and as I was, uh, in fact, sitting here on Christmas Eve, um, second-guessing myself as to what I was going to preach, that's not always good as a pastor. You're, you're sitting there and you're ready to give them like 10 minutes, and you're thinking, oh, I could have preached this instead, right? And you start thinking through a message, and I think, well, maybe I'll just preach that this Sunday. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to preach a message this morning that was uh, spawned down in that chair on Christmas Eve uh, as I was thinking about uh, the different ways to look at Christmas, uh, and uh, hopefully this will be a creative, unique way uh, of looking at Christmas, and as we've just um, celebrated Christmas together as a church and as our, our own families, um, it would be very easy to let that be in our rearview mirror, and we just kind of head off into the new year, and we just kind of forget about Christmas where I think God would be uh, honored if we were to live in light of Christmas all year round. Amen? And so hopefully this message this morning will help us toward that end. And I've entitled today's message, Breaking the Silence, Let Heaven and Nature Sing. And it's really, uh, uh, those of you that were here on Wednesday night, it's, a, it's a, uh, uh, basically a remix of my last message on the book of Malachi with a Christmas twist. And so hopefully it'll all come together here in the end. But I'm sure some of you are familiar with the classic work by the late great Christian philosopher and apologist Francis Schaeffer uh, entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. Anybody ever heard of that book, He is There and He is Not Silent by Francis Schaeffer? Uh, this book is based on his late, late night conversations at Labrie Fellowship in the Swiss Alps, that would be a nice place to serve the Lord, right? Uh, but he would have these uh, conversations with the young adults, and, 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 uh, and so this book really is a compilation of those conversations. It discusses uh, fundamental questions about God, such as who He is and why He matters. And, and the reason why I mention this book is not because of its brilliant content, but simply because of its brilliant title. He is the Anyway, do I, I, whoa, there I am again, okay, sorry folks. Uh, hey, this is like the first like, glitch we've had since we moved to the new building, right? And this is good? God's good to us that, that, that it hasn't been more of this kind of stuff. But um, uh, the, the, the reason why I like that title, He is There and He's Not Silent, is just it implies one of the most significant foundational truths about God, namely that God has spoken, that God speaks. It is the nature of God to speak, which is confirmed throughout the pages of Scripture, which is in itself a product of God's ongoing speech or communication or revelation to His creatures. I mean, listen to how the Bible begins. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, then God said, let there be light, 
and there was light. In Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat for thee, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you will eat from it. If you eat from it, you will surely die. In chapter 3, verse 13, he came looking for the man and woman after they sinned and ate that fruit. And it says, And the Lord God said to the woman, um, in chapter 6, verse 13, Uh, God spoke to to Noah, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And so not only did God speak to Adam and Eve and Noah, but he also spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and countless other individuals in the Old Testament, and he spoke collectively and consistently to his chosen people, the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, then God spoke all these words, saying, and then he goes on to to speak the Ten Commandments. And so God spoke to them through Moses and and Joshua and Samuel and, and, and all sorts of others. But the main way that God spoke to his people, the nation of Israel, as a whole was through a group of men known as the prophets. And our Bible contains the written record of of 17 of those prophets. Um, There's five major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Lamentations written by Jeremiah. And then there's 12 minor prophets, not because they're any less important, but they're just smaller uh, in size. And so God spoke through the prophets, but God's voice was heard the loudest and the clearest through the ultimate prophet, his own son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. And we've learned in the gospel of John, John 1, 1, that Jesus was referred to as the word, right? The word was with God and the word was God. And so there's no better word to describe Jesus than the Word. He was the ultimate revelation, the ultimate voice, if you will, of of God. And after Jesus returned to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to continue to speak to his followers, John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, Jesus said he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And it was through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the apostles and the prophets wrote the scriptures, and we know that from 2 Peter 1.20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So all that to say, the testimony of Scripture is that God has spoken and He continues to speak through the pages of His inspired Word. However, there's one exception to the fact that God is there and He is not silent. There was a time in history when God was silent, that he didn't say a word for 400 years. 
You may have heard of the 400 silent years. It's what Bible scholars refer to as the intertestamental period, the time span between the Old and New Testament. If you want to look for it, go to Malachi, and, and uh, at the end of Malachi, you'll see some white space in your Bible before you get to Matthew. That's the 400 silent years, the intertestamental period, uh, basically four decades past between the last word that God spoke through the prophet Malachi until the first word that he spoke again through the angel Gabriel to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. The question we should ask ourselves is, why did God stop speaking for such a long period of time? This was unprecedented for God not to speak for 400 years. What would possibly cause that to happen? Well, let me suggest to you a possible answer to that question. That after speaking through the prophets for 400 years, before the 400 silent years, for 400 years, he, he, he pleaded with the people, he, 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 he um, called the people to repentance uh, to no avail. The people failed to heed his words and repent of their sin and return to him. And so could it be that he just decided to stop talking to them? You haven't listened to me for 400 years? I'm going to stop talking to you for 400 years. It could have been that God gave them the silent treatment. You're like, that doesn't sound like God. Well, wasn't it Jesus who said to his disciples that if people don't listen to you when you're proclaiming the truth about me uh, to to shake the dust off your sandals and move on? Uh, Don't don't cast your pearls before swine. Uh, Don't don't waste these these precious truths of the gospel uh, to people that won't listen to you, but go and find people who will listen to you. There's nothing more sad or scary than to not hear from God. Some of you may have felt that at times in your life, that God was not speaking to you. Um, I think it should give us pause and say, well, why is it? Why do I feel that way? Well, why is it I'm sensing that God, I don't, I don't hear the voice of God. God's not talking to me, obviously, through the Word is what we're talking about here. I think it's ironic that of the 55 verses in the book of Malachi, 47 of them were spoken directly by God, which is a higher proportion or percentage than any other book of the Bible. It's as if God was making his final appeal to his wayward people, Israel, through Malachi, and he used more words than he'd ever had before or ever would again in a last-ditch effort to get their attention and get them to turn back to him. And the book Malachi, the, the, the name itself means messenger. Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets, again, until Zacharias prophesied about his son, John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1. And so the book of Malachi really serves a unique place in the canon, in the scriptures, because it's a, really a bridge between the Old and New Testaments. The main point of Malachi's prophecy is that God was going to send another Malachi, another messenger. And John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the ultimate messenger, right, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Notice Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. If you're not there yet, hurry your way to Malachi 
right there smack dab in the middle of your Bible, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what God says through Malachi. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter, 10, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, Jesus applies this prophecy to John the Baptist. This is what Jesus said about John the Baptist. He said, this is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And so the book of Malachi is, again, no minor uh, prophet in the sense of it doesn't have much to teach us because, again, it serves a very strategic uh, place in the canon and, and in our understanding of uh, of the coming of Christ, not only his first coming, but also his second coming. Let, let me give you a, just a quick background on the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi was one of the three post-exilic prophets, which means that he was one of the uh, uh, three prophets who ministered to the exiles who had returned to Judah uh, after they had been taken into exile by Babylon, and they were allowed to return by the Persian Empire to rebuild the temple and the walls. And there were three prophets who, who prophesied during that, uh, during that post-exilic time. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah both prophesied during the rebuilding of the temple. And Malachi prophesied about 100 years after them, uh, shortly after uh, the rebuilding of the walls. And, and so the best place to understand the historical background of the book of Malachi and why he said the things he said was to go back and look at the book of, where do we find the rebuilding of the walls? How about Nehemiah? Nehemiah. Go, go to Nehemiah for a second. And again, that's just uh, go to Psalms, and then you got Job, and then you got uh, Esther. So it's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. So the book of Nehemiah uh, is, is uh, really the personal memoirs of this great leader that God used uh, to rebuild the walls uh, in an, uh, of Jerusalem in an amazing 52 days. And uh, Nehemiah was a, a stellar organizational and spiritual leader, and uh, God used him um, not only to reconstruct the walls, but also to reconsecrate the hearts of the people. And if you remember, uh, after they were done rebuilding the walls uh, in, in Nehemiah chapter 8, the people gathered uh, together as one person in front of the water gate, the newly rebuilt water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law. They were like, Ezra, preach to us, man. We, we need to hear the Word of God. We've been busy working all this time, and we haven't had time to hear the Word of God. And so, so they invited Ezra uh, to come. And, and as you probably are familiar with Nehemiah chapter 8, we have this uh, famous exposition of the book of the law of Moses by Ezra. And the people wept, and they confessed their sin to God. They vowed that they would keep His commands from that moment on. And they made an agreement with God to live according to His law, the, specifically to refrain from intermarrying with foreign women or foreign nations uh, to keep the Sabbath and to faithfully tithe uh, and, and give offerings to the Lord. Those were the three specific things that they promised to do. And they actually put this agreement in writing in, in Nehemiah chapter 10. We don't have time to, to read all this uh, this morning. In Nehemiah chapter 10, 
verses 28 through 20, uh, 39, uh, really they, they write out their, the obligations uh, in a document form. And if you were just to breeze over that section, you'll see that they were committing uh, to not intermarry with foreign nations, to keep the Sabbath. People were, foreign nations were coming in and wanting to trade with them on the Sabbath, and they were, they were doing that instead of honoring the Lord's Day. And then, of course, to, they weren't uh, faithfully tithing of, of uh, all their wealth. And so they, they put this in writing, and afterwards, uh, after writing this all down, they had a big celebration to commemorate their renewed commitment to God. Chapter 12, verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. And so this was a high point in the history of Israel. The temple and the walls were rebuilt. The temple rituals had been restored. The people had rededicated themselves. I mean, everything appeared ready for God to send the Messiah. And restore Israel to her former glory as preeminent among the nations, just like he'd been promising to do through all these prophets. Zechariah, for example, just a hundred years earlier, had, had prophesied about this, this splendid restored temple uh, that, that, uh, that, that all the nations would come to and that there was going to be a new powerful kingdom and on its throne would sit a mighty son of David, obviously a prophecy of the Messiah. <coughs> Well, somewhere in between chapters 12 and 13, Nehemiah went back to Persia. If you remember, he was the king's cupbearer. So he went back to, to, to spend time with his, uh, his lord, his master, the one who'd given him permission to come and, and rebuild the walls. And so he went back there for about seven years or so. And when he returned to Jerusalem, he was appalled by the corruption and compromise that had developed while he was away in just short, a short seven years. And if you look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 6, again, not having time to read this in, in, in depth this morning, but if you were to look there at verses 6 through, through, uh, through 31, you'll see the titles, at least there's titles in my Bible, tithes restored, Sabbath restored, mixed marriages forbidden. Does that sound, any of that sound familiar? They were not a living. They were not living according to God's law. They they were not pay the, paying their tithes. They were not keeping the Sabbath, and they were intermarrying with foreign women. In fact, they were, as we're going to see, divorcing their wives in order to marry foreign women. And so, tragically, they had learned little from the time that they had spent in captivity, and they had lapsed into some of the same sins that resulted in God sending them into exile in the first place. I mean, these were the same exact sins that the people had promised in writing that they would never commit again. And be careful, don't think, oh, those Israelites, they were a bunch of knuckleheads, they were a mess. How many times have you promised, God, you know, I will never do that again. And yet you've fallen back into some of those same habits. We are the nation of Israel, whether we want to admit it or not. And we know from 1 Corinthians 10 that that the Old Testament was written for our instruction. And and basically, you could put a big big title over the Old Testament, and it could be called, don't be that guy. (laughs) Don't be that nation. Don't, Don't be like Israel. 
And we're going to notice here as we just quickly go over the book of Malachi this morning that the sins that Nehemiah returned to find were the very same sins that God called Malachi to confront while Nehemiah was away. And so Malachi served during those years when, when, when Nehemiah was away and he was confronting these very same sins. And one of the most disturbing things about the book of Malachi, and you'll pick this up as we just read through it together this morning, is how arrogant and how cynical and how skeptical the people had become toward God. You say, well, how did, how did they get that way? Well, think about what they had experienced. All the prophecies during the previous generation about the exciting things to come had raised their hopes and expectations that everything was about to change and, and the Messiah was about to come and, and, and it was just going to be this glorious uh, generation and season in the life of Israel. And, and yet a hundred years had passed since the remnant had returned to, to Jerusalem and the people were now discouraged. That nothing that had been promised by the prophets had happened yet. And by the time the Malachi came along, the temple was, was run down and neglected because of a lack of funds. People weren't giving to the, to the, to the building of the, 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 the maintenance of the temple, and the priests were corrupt, and the people were getting divorced and intermarrying with foreigners, and the economy was depressed, and the crops were being devoured by, by parasites, and all, all of which caused the Jews to be disillusioned and, and doubtful, like, as Chuck Swindoll said so well, passengers at a train station waiting for a train that never came. That's where they were. They were just kind of on the, uh, at the train station waiting for the train, and it never came. And what happens when you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and try to stay faithful and try to stay faithful, try to stay faithful, right? What happens? You begin to question God. And they had given up hope of the Messiah ever coming, and so they had gone back to their old way of life and their old way of thinking, and, 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 and I guess they were at where um, Asaph was in Psalm 73, does it really pay to honor God? I mean, why, really, does it really pay to honor God? Because it appears that He doesn't love us after all. And so consequently, they were not only disenchanted with God, they were also calloused and embittered towards Him. And we'll see that there's a question and answer style uh, as we go through these three chapters. And, and God makes a charge against the people, and the people challenge God. They, they talk back to God. They, they grumble, hey, you've been ripping me off. And they're like, what are you talking about? How have we ripped you off? You're like, whoa, easy, you're talking to God here. And if he's accusing you of robbing him, then he's right. But they were talking back to him. They were bitter towards God. And so Malachi's mission was not only to expose the sin in the hearts of these disillusioned, disgruntled people, but it was also to light a flame of faith in their hearts and giving them hope by reminding them that God had not forgotten them and that he would keep his promise. And the Messiah was still going to come. And so let's just look at Malachi quickly this morning, and I've broken it up into three sections here. There's three messages, if you will. There's a message of love, there's a message of rebuke, and there's a message of hope. 
Let's look, first of all, at the message of love. Notice how Malachi begins addressing probably the root issue that the people were doubting that God really loved them. Never thought that? Ever felt that? Ever struggled with that, right? I think it's a a common occurrence in the hearts of the followers of God. Notice verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? There they go. They're they're quick to talk back to God. What are you talking about? You don't don't love us. How have you loved us? Was not Esau, Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, i.e. you, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness." Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Of course, Edom was where Esau and his descendants lived, uh, and they were... Uh, under the judgment of God, whereas Israel was the chosen nation, and they were the ones who were blessed. And so the point is this, all, all the people could see at this time was their hardship and their difficulty and all the unfulfilled promises that God had, had made toward them. And so what he was doing here was reaffirming his love for them by reminding them of how he selected them and had preserved them as his chosen people. It it's a, should remind us of what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more nu- numerous than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because of the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." And so there's the classic text uh, in the Old Testament about God's election, God's electing grace of, by choosing the, the nation of Israel. Uh, Malachi 1 may sound familiar because Paul uh, quoted it uh, in Romans chapter 9 when he was discussing uh, to the nation of Israel and helping people understand what happened to the nation of Israel. Uh, now it's all about the Gentiles. Paul was the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, and so where do, the, where, do, where do the Israelites fit now? And so in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he talks about this, this parenthesis season in the history of Israel where God is working in the church. Um, but notice in, in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, he says, For though the twins were not yet born... And have not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so he begins to tackle this issue of the doctrine of election, and he anticipates the natural response of anyone listening to this going, wait a minute, that doesn't sound fair. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he goes on to talk about 
uh, again, the doctrine of election and, and, um, and the nation of Israel and also believers. So the, the point is this, back in Malachi chapter uh, 1, that rather than appreciating their privileged position as God's chosen people, uh, the nation had begun to grumble and complain against God about all the difficulties, ironically, that their own sins had brought on them. The, the difficulties were their own fault. And yet they were blaming God for these difficulties and blowing off the covenant that they had made with God. And so God just wanted to begin by reaffirming His love for His people. But their response to his love led to a message of rebuke. And in verses 6 all the way to chapter 3, verse 15, uh, really the bulk of this, of this prophecy is, is a rebuke to, first of all, the priests, and secondly, to the people for not honoring God. Let's look how the priests failed to honor God. They were unfaithful. Uh, in verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? See, they're talking back to the Lord, even the priests, the spiritual leaders. You are presenting defiled food. I'll tell you how you're despising me. You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly? Kindly, says the Lord of hosts, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. And as we know, uh, the Old Testament law said that uh, you were never to offer to God a blemished animal. It was to be unblemished. It was to be the best of the best, right? Give God your best. Well, they were given God their what? Their leftovers. They, they, they weren't given God the best sheep. Okay, let me see the best sheep in the flock. I'm going to grab that and I'm going to go sacrifice that to the Lord. They were saying, hey, where's that, where's that old Bessie one, you know, that was like cr- crippled and can, can only see out of one eye and, you know, stumbles around and uh, she's about to die off anyway. I'm going to just grab her and sacrifice her. And God's like, Really? Would you offer that same sacrifice to your governor, your human authority? You think he would take kindly to that? Why would you expect me to take kindly to that? He said, I would rather have you just shut the temple down and not offer any sacrifices than to receive the ones that you're offering. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you're profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who is a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. 
not only were they offering these, these blemished, um, sick, lame animals, uh, they were taking the best of these offerings for themselves. And, and that was part of God's law, that, that God provided a way for the Levites and the priests to be cared for through the offering system. And they were able to take a certain part of the offering and use it to sustain themselves. And, and, and so they were going for the best stuff. They were real greedy and grabby, and so they were, they were taking the best for themselves. They, they, they weren't, uh, people would bring them stuff and they'd be like, pff, pff, yeah, whatever. They were kind of looking a gift horse in the mouth, if you will. People would give them, you know, offering these, well, that's not good enough for us. We want something better. That was the attitude of the priests. Notice the, the, the discipline that was going to come on these priests, verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, and I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces. I mean, God doesn't mess. When he's upset, right, this is righteous indignation, and he's basically saying, I'm going to take some poop and wipe it on your face. That's what he's saying. The refuse of your feast, you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I've gave them as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. He's reminding them of Levi and what an honorable man he was and how he honored the Lord. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should see Seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. He's reminding them, this is what you guys should be doing. But you're not, because you've turned aside from the way. You should be causing people to, to turn back from iniquity, but you yourselves have turned aside to iniquity. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've given them false teaching, and you've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, so I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. So even the people despise the leaders. Reminds me of that news story just happened yesterday, right, when the all the police officers in New York City turned their back when the mayor was speaking, right? They were not honoring him. They were, not, they were despising him because of some of the things he said and done. And that's in the same way, the, the people were like, seriously? You expect us to respect you? The priests? You're worse than we are. So he rebukes the unfaithful priests. But notice he goes on to talk about the people as a whole in verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Uh, you guys are fighting amongst yourselves. You're not honoring the Lord. You're not honoring one another. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? 
So here they are coming, they're continuing to going, going through the religious motions. They're showing up at the temple, they're offering the sacrifices, but they're hearing that God is not going to accept those sacrifices, and they're crying, and they're all upset about, oh, why? We don't understand God. He's like, really? I'll tell you why, verse 14, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, a God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Obviously, this is one of the key passages uh, in the scriptures regarding divorce and, and what God thinks about divorce. And, and, uh, and, and when we deal treacherously, uh, that's another way to describe divorce from, in biblical terminology. It's dealing treacherously with the spouse of your youth, the wife of your youth, the husband of your youth. And God hates it. And he's simply saying, if we mistreat our spouses and we break our vows and our promises them for, for selfish reasons, why would you be surprised that you don't experience God's blessing in your life? I've had conversations with people that are like, you know what, I, I, I'm just not happy anymore in my marriage. And, and, and I know God wants me to be happy. And so I'm going to get a divorce. And I'm just simply saying, number one, your thinking is all messed up, okay? Because where does it say in the Bible that God created marriage for your happiness? He created it for your holiness, for your sanctification. But you think you're unhappy now? In an unhappy marriage, you don't know unhappy until you do something that God hates. Your, your level of unhappiness is just going to go off the, the, the Richter scale, and so they were, again, divorcing their spouses to marry foreign women. Notice he goes on, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Where is the God of justice? They're like, hey, come on, this isn't fair. It seems like people that do evil, they're blessed, right? Those who do good right? The, the, things go bad for him. Again, it's Asaph, Psalm 73, the envy of the wicked. And notice the hope he gives them in chapter 3, verse 1. In the midst of this rebuke, he gives them hope. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And I think there's not just one messenger he's referring to, but two. Verse 1, there's the, mess, the first messenger is John the Baptist, who will, who will prepare the way for the second messenger, Jesus Christ. In other words, justice is coming in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like full of soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days. 
Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Again, he's just listing some of the things that were going on at the time in the nation of Judah there, which ultimately deserved to be what? Judged, punished, and, and ultimately for them to be consumed, to go out of existence. They had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and they just kept blowing God off, blowing God off, blowing God off, and, and God could have justly said, I'm done with you guys. It's over. And they go out of existence, right? But notice he says in verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not what? Change. Therefore, your sons are not consumed. In other words, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible about God's immutability, the fact that God does not change. In other words, God is faithful. And God made promises to the nation of Israel that he will keep no matter what. Even if they don't keep up their end of the bargain, he's keeping his end of the bargain. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Here they go. They're still popping off to God. He's, he's, he's inviting them to return to him, and I, I'll return to you. And he says, well, how are we going to do that, God? How, how do we return to you? He says, okay, I'll tell you. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? I'll tell you how you robbed me in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I'll rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Apparently, as an agricultural society, and they were hurting. There was all sorts of pestilence, and the fruit was being destroyed, and the, the grapes were going bad, and, and, and everything was going bad for them. And he, he says, I'll tell you why it's going bad for you, because you're not giving me what I deserve. None of this belongs to you. It all belongs to me. And you're supposed to be giving me the first fruits of all of this stuff, and, and, and you're not. You're just giving me the leftovers. You're giving me the junk fruit. You're giving me the whatever, and, and you're ripping me off. Again, some great principles here uh, on the whole principle of tithing and, and giving back to the Lord. Now, we know that the principle of tithing is not repeated in the New Testament specifically. No, nowhere do we see that term tithing used in the New Testament. We just see a, a new kind of giving, what we could call grace giving, where you just give uh, joyfully and sacrificially and, 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 and to the Lord uh, and not necessarily have to give a percentage. In the Old Testament, there was a certain percentage that they were supposed to be giving to the Lord. And they were failing to give that percentage. And so God says, that's why you're cursed. You're not obeying me. You're not honoring me. And I would say this. There's times when I've had the privilege of counseling folks who are really going through a rough time financially. And, and I'll say, hey, I'm just curious. Are you giving to the Lord? 
Are you putting money in the offering on a weekly basis? And oftentimes they'll drop their head and they'll be like, well, no, we, we really can't afford to do that. And I suggest to them that that might be part of your problem, that you're experiencing what the Israelites were experiencing here in Malachi chapter 3 is that you're not giving God, giving back to God what is rightfully His. And, and I said, do this for me. No, for me, do this for the Lord. This next Sunday, I don't care if it's a dollar or it's $5 or a $10 bill, just put that in the offering box and begin to get back into the habit of giving joyfully and sacrificially um, to the Lord and, and, and see what happens. Because God promises here that when you give to Him, what happens? You, he gives back to you, right? And He, and he blesses you. When you're faithful, when you're a faithful steward of the wealth that he gives you, when you steward it well, giving back to him, using it to serve others, he just continues to pour out his blessing on you because he can trust you with his stuff. Verse 13, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we, how have we spoken against you? Again, they're just talking back to God. You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Again, if you want a commentary on what where they were at in their hearts, just read Psalm 73. Asaph basically said the same thing, that, that it doesn't pay to honor God. Here I am trying to live a pure and holy life, and it seems like I've kept my life pure for in vain. It seems like the unrighteous, the evil, man, they get away with murder. And it doesn't seem like God does anything. Why, why should we honor you? And that ends this message of rebuke and it leads into this message of hope and this is this is our god this is our god who while he you know speaks the truth and love to us he he's always ready to give us hope even when we deserve nothing but his punishment nothing but his wrath nothing but his judgment he he gives us hope Notice this message of hope here, starting in verse 16 to the end of the book. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God's basically saying, yeah, I, I get that. I know it does appear. It might appear that it doesn't pay to honor me because of, of the way things go with the wicked sometime. But know that I know who fears me and I know those who don't fear me and those who don't fear and honor me, they'll get what they deserve. Someday, some way, They'll get what they deserve. They will be judged. They will be punished. But I will spare and bless those who fear me and honor me. This is really the, the bottom line of, of, of Israel's sin against the Lord. What was the root of this? They had lost their fear and reverence of the Lord. They were not fearing Him. They were not revering Him. They were not honoring him. And isn't that what it says in Romans 3.18, the, the bottom line of, of this scathing 
uh, description of, of man's sin is that there was no fear of God before their eyes? That's the bottom line. The reason why you sin, the reason why I sin, the reason why the world sins is we don't revere God. We don't honor God. We don't respect God. There's no fear of God before our eyes. And because they had no fear, they dishonored God, and they truly believed that they deserved better from God. You ever thought that? I have. God, seriously? Don't I? Come on. I've been faithful. Don't don't I deserve better than this? Be careful, right? You're... You're, uh, you're living in the book of Malachi there. Notice chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be like chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, you don't want to be around when Jesus comes, right, and you are not honoring and, 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 and obeying the Lord because you'll be destroyed. But, verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, that verse 2 there was quoted by John the Baptist, or I should say was quoted by Zacharias in his prophecy of John the Baptist. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Obviously, that was a reference to who? Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant. Guys, you forgot the law. Remember the law. You committed to obey the law. Even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in horror for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Interesting here in these last six verses, we have um, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ just blurred together. Do you see it? It's like, is this talking about the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ? Answer is yes, it's both, which is very common, very typical of prophecy is that, that they were talking about the first coming of Christ, but then you climbed up that mountain peak and you realized you got up top and go, ooh, we made it whoa, there's another one way out there and there's this big old valley in between. We, didn't, we couldn't have seen it before. So it's this mountain peak of fulfillment of prophecy and that's what we see in the first and second coming of Christ. The prophets couldn't necessarily see what we see now, right? We're living in that valley between the first and second coming of Christ. They didn't, they didn't see that. But notice what he says here. He says, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I think that's a reference to Christ's second coming, because while, um, while John the Baptist was likened to Elijah, he was not Elijah, and some would say that Elijah will return, he might be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. I think this is more of a reference to the second coming of Christ, and and as a result of people's repentance, wide-scale repentance, God's judgment will be averted, and the curse of sin will be reversed, and the earth will be restored to its original sinless state. How cool will that be? You realize when we talk about 
living in heaven for all eternity, it really is living in a new heaven and a new earth. It's not floating on a cloud somewhere playing a harp and a little white toga, right? It's, it's, it's probably being very productive in a new heaven, a new earth, restored to its original perfection. And so Malachi serves as a fitting conclusion to the Old Testament because it just underscores the sinfulness of mankind and it anticipates God's solution in the coming of the sinless Messiah who was revealed in the New Testament. Hopefully you're looking at your Bible and you see Malachi 4, 6 and you turn the very next page, New Testament, Jesus Christ. You could put that underneath the New Testament, it's just Jesus Christ. And so the deafening four years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament in that white space there was broken by the angel Gabriel when he announced to an old prophet named Zacharias that he would father a son who would fulfill the promise of Malachi. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 13. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to Zacharias... Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Listen, verse 16, see if this sounds familiar. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, quoting Malachi here, to return the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. How ironic that the last word of the Old Testament is what? Go back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Well, what's the last word that comes out of the, the mouth of God before he stops talking for 400 years? What is it? Curse. The word curse. Is that, a, is that an accident? Is that a coincidence? I think not. It's interesting. I read this, that the Jews today will repeat verse 5 when they read the book of Malachi because they don't want it to end with a curse. So they'll go back and they'll read verse 5 about the great and the terrible day of the Lord. So why would God end the Old Testament on such a downer? <laughs> the, the curse. Well, I think it may have been so that we would anticipate the coming of the one who would become a curse for us and in doing so would redeem us and them from the curse of sin and death. Isn't that what Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's you, by the way. That's me. So that we would receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. Hopefully that gets you excited and makes you want to sing songs like we sing at Christmas. Probably one of the most familiar, famous, beloved Christmas carols is Joy to the World by Isaac Watts. We sang it 
uh, in the last few weeks, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing. And then it goes on to say this, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Why are there thorns? Sin, it's the curse of sin. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. And what Watts was expressing in that that hymn is, is the joyous truth that the Lord Jesus Christ mercifully came to this sin-cursed world to deliver us from the pain and the sorrow and the misery that we have brought upon ourselves as a result of our sinful rebellion against God. There's not a place on this planet that is not affected by sin, nor is there a person on this planet that is not infected with sin. The curse is found everywhere. How far is that curse found? It's found everywhere. And we know that the world that we're living is, it is not the world that God made at first. Things were not this way before sin entered the world. Originally, the world was a perfect paradise. There was no such thing as suffering and death or pain or sorrow. But everything changed the moment that man rebelled against God. And when Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit, the curse came upon them and all their descendants, and the curse remains on us and on this earth to this day. And that's why we feel the effects of sin in our lives every day, whether it's the general effects of just living in a, in a sin-cursed world and, and storms and natural disasters and things like that, or, or the indirect effect of other people's sins against us. Maybe our spouse sins and it affects us, or our kids sin and it affects us, our brothers and sisters sin and it affects us, or, or maybe we experience the direct effects of our own sin, that we do stupid, sinful things. And we suffer as a result of it. And so as a result of sin's curse, every one of us has had to learn to live with pain and death and mourning and heartache. Some of you know what that's like this Christmas because you're grieving and mourning the loss of a loved one. And this maybe was the first Christmas that that you were without that person or you're anticipating not having that one much longer, and, and, and so this maybe wasn't a happy time. It was a, it was a sad time. This is just a, a normal part of life for us, and the harsh reality is that we created this mess by not following God's commands and living according to His ways. We, we have no one to blame but ourselves for our tragic plight. But here's the good news. In the midst of God cursing the world as a punishment for man's sin, he promised, he made a promise to send a savior someday who would remove the curse of sin that rests on all of us living on this earth and even rests on the earth itself. And that savior obviously is Jesus Christ who was born on Christmas Day just as the prophets had foretold. And those of us who embrace Christ as our Savior and commit our lives to follow and obey Him as our Lord, as our Master, we can experience the joy of having the curse of sin lifted from our hearts and our lives. And at the same time, we can endure 
living amid the difficulties and the heartaches and, and, and the pains of this sin-cursed world with the hope that when Jesus returns, sin's curse will finally be lifted from earth itself and paradise will be restored. And we get to be a part of that. I trust that brings your heart joy. Not just joy to the world, joy to me. Might sound selfish singing that hymn though, like joy to me, the Lord has come, right? But that's what it should be. Not just joy to the world, joy to me. Joy to my life. Francis Schaeffer, who wrote He is There and He's Not Silent, is probably best known for his book, and film series that he wrote entitled, How Then Should We Live? More of you are probably more familiar with that. How then shall we live? How then should we live? And I think that's the question that we should, we should be asking ourselves right now, having just celebrated Christmas, as we move into the new year, how then should we live? How should we live in light of what we've just experienced during the holiday, during Christmas time? Well, if you haven't shut your Bible, look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, because I think this is how we should live. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, talking about the coming of Christ, and here it is, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. What a, what a vivid analogy. Those of you that live on a ranch, you work on a ranch, you, you, you see this, man. You, you get this. For those that don't, let me explain it to you, right? That during the winter months, calves are confined to their stalls, and when they're finally turned loose into the field in the springtime, what do they do? They literally kick up their heels, and they, 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 they skip about, they leap for joy. I mean, it's fun to watch. I never saw a person. I saw it on YouTube. Because I said, what, what do cows look like when they skip? And so I did a little Google search and came up with a little YouTube video of some rancher letting his cows out in the springtime. And they were hopping around, kicking their rear end in the air. And they were, they were just having a great time. We're free. Is what they're, we're free is what they're thinking. If cows think, right? That, that, that's, we're free. Listen, we are free from the curse of sin. And so we should live our lives with joy in our hearts and a skip in our step as we anticipate our ultimate redemption when Christ returns. Maybe a better title to this message would be Breaking the Silence, Let Heaven and Nature Sing and Heifer Skip. How's that? The Texas Christmas message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful prophecy that while it's filled with rebuke and really tragic relapse, uh, the people backsliding and going back to the same exact sins that they had promised they would never commit again, it's where we see ourselves in that pattern of Israel. And Lord, it just reminds us of, of the curse of sin, and we're so grateful that Christ came to deliver us from sin, to break the power of sin and to take the punishment of sin. 
And Lord, as we continue to fight against sin and its presence in our lives, I pray we would do it with joy in our hearts and a skip in our step, that we would be like those young calves, just so excited to be out of the pen, out in the field, feeling freedom. Lord, that we would go into the new year with that, with that joy in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.